Welcome to the Automotive Diagnostic Podcast. We're going to explore ways to sharpen our diagnostic skills, find learning resources, and hear from experts in the automotive field. Hey, what's going on, automotive world? Welcome to another episode of the Automotive Diagnostic Podcast. With me, Sean Tipping, I'll be your host for today. Joining me on the show today is Zach McLean. Zach's from Arkansas. He is an educator in the automotive world, been a technician. He's actually working towards starting his own mobile business. Uh, we are going to talk about all those things. Uh, we actually met at ASTE, um, or we were acquaintances prior to that, but we had some good conversation at the event and decided, well, why not record it? And uh, that's uh, what you're going to hear in the, today's episode. We chatted about education in the automotive world and uh, all of what goes into making that happen. Also chat a little bit about uh, mobile businesses and stuff like that. So this was a great chat. I enjoyed talking to Zach. So let's jump right in. So uh, what, what's going on? What's happening, Zach? Oh, uh, well, I've had a pretty interesting day. I would, I'm on what I guess I would consider a break from the automotive industry. I've been back from ASTE for... A few days now. Um, I've got my business cards. Don't have my LLC finished, so I'm trying to go mobile. So I'm just I'm okay. in this transitionary phase. I don't know. It's it's weird. Life's crazy. I got a little few side jobs I'm doing. Waiting on key machine. Everything's on back order. You know how it goes. Yes, I do. Never ending struggle. I've been waiting on some keys that I ordered since like March or something crazy like that. <laughs> it's like, all right, well, I guess I'm not getting those anytime soon. What kind of keys did you order? Um, I think it was key DIY or something along those lines. It was just, it was like a whole case. It came with a bunch of just like ready to go. Some of them had the remote, um, heads to them. And then some of them were just like the transponder heads, but it was like a whole kit. So it'd kind of have everything. And yeah, it's, you know, no fault of anyone I ordered it from. It's, it's everybody's experiencing the same thing right now with the, the intergalactic back order of it seems like everything i had a i had a ford focus or fiesta that was sitting at a shop for i mean it must be it's been months since i diagnosed it and since they actually got the module for the tcm just recently uh to to fix it so everybody's hurting from this Glad to hear it's not just a part shortage, it's a key shortage, it's a tool shortage. Everybody's waiting. So I feel less like a loser now. <laughs> when I tell people, hey, I'm waiting on something, you know. I've actually had two or three shops call me and, you know, what do they call me for? Keys. Like, hey, man, we need a key. Of course. Like, oh, of course, the one thing I don't have. <laughs> so it's just the way it goes. That's pretty cool, though, going mobile. Um, how, how did that come about? How did you get to that point? So life's been wild. My wife worked for a corporation that's actually based here in Arkansas where I live, and she was in a program and it required us to move. So we moved to North Carolina. Um, I was an automotive tech and an automotive educator before that, and we moved to North Carolina, had to, had to give up teaching, broke my heart. You know, it was the best job I've ever had was a teacher. So we went there and I met some amazing techs, some amazing owners. So Lucas Underwood, the, the ASOG podcast guy, I've been to his shop for a Diag day. Yeah. Um, Isaac, everybody knows Isaac. He sells us all the, the best programming laptops on the market. I actually lived about an hour from Isaac, so I spent a lot of time with him. 
uh, ended up actually apprenticing under a locksmith. So I okay. found a locksmith roughly 30 minutes from where I was living, ended up becoming great friends with him. And he was like, hey, do you want to come learn keys? And I was like, absolutely. So I went and went mobile because he's a mobile guy. I mean, we would go from customer to customer. We typically served about 50, 50 shops and, and retail customers. So it was it was an eye-opening experience because I had traditionally only been in, you know, a, a facility where I repaired vehicles, you know, service advisor took tickets to me and I never dealt with customers. So it was, it was pretty interesting going from that fixed location to mobile. And then of course I moved back. Now I'm back home in Arkansas and I'm like, Hey, it's time to go. I want to, I want to do that some okay. more. Okay. Nice. Yeah. That, that is so valuable that you get to learn right from a locksmith because I've been trying to figure out this whole key thing and I'm just fumbling about I, I got a I actually got some key stuff for my Isaac I got the dolphin and the the starter kit that he sells and I mean the I'm kind of figuring it out like I feel like I can make most keys but I still run into stuff and I'm just like oh I don't know how do I do this and then I don't know how to say leshy or leashy so i say it both ways every time i'm like one of those i think is right so potato i'm potato. Uh, <laughs> yeah exactly but man there's a lot of money in that key stuff the way that i see it man it's our industries are running head forward like head face forward at each other the locksmiths they're doing keys as as you know result of programming we're doing keys as a result of programming and everybody's ended up working on the same stuff. So they're learning the programming side of things because the keys require it sometimes. And we're learning the, the key side of things because programming requires it. So I, I saw this as like a necessity. I, I just had to learn it. And thankfully okay. I was able to make a great connection. I mean, I was talking to my locksmith like 30 minutes ago about a, a car he's trying to diagnose because he just typically doesn't do diagnostics. You know, he does keys. And what's the story we all hear? Hey man, this car just needs a key. You roll in there, you, you cut a key, and sure enough, it doesn't need a key. So it's like I said, yeah. we're running head head first at each other, and we both have to learn. You know, locksmiths have to learn the diag side of things and programming, which they already mostly know a lot of that stuff. But we have to learn the key side of things too. So it's it's been an amazing opportunity. Yeah, we had a couple locksmiths that attended uh, Mike and Pedro's EPROM class in Vegas and it was interesting talking to them because yeah they were very unfamiliar with you know module programming you know like just doing something basic like a GM right pretty straightforward and easy and then the key side of stuff like I mentioned I'm a complete beginner at so the stuff they're just super familiar with but yeah seeing those two different worlds interact is interesting but yeah you can't avoid it that's just the way it is if you're going to go out there and do this stuff um so you're going to be doing programming diagnostics and keys for your mobile business that's the plan i am still on the fence i don't know if i'm gonna do retail customers or not i really want to cater to shops but since i'm doing not just keys i, I think that i can tend to cater to shops so we'll we'll yeah. see how it goes I, um, I, I've definitely done some retail customers because mine's kind of like a part-time gig and it started out real small. And the more I progress onwards, the less that I want to have anything to do with it. Um, even if it's somebody that's cool, I mean, cause there's some shady people out there, but even if it's somebody that, you know, isn't going to try to rob me, I still, it, it always ends up to be some sort of mess somehow or another. 
Um, and then they have your, your phone number and then they're calling you for stupid stuff. And so I, I have been trying to avoid that as much as possible, but I get it when you're starting out, like, Hey, I'll take what I can get. Right. Got to start somewhere. They say, <laughs> yeah. And so you got a van all set up and everything. Not, not finished setting up. I have a, a, a van that I'm going to use. It's an Astro. So I'm going to nice. probably rip, rip some stuff out of it. It used to be a wheelchair van. So it's got like a raised roof already. It's, it's really nice to have okay. that. But then you got to pay the price. You got to take all that equipment out. I got to remove the lift and remove a bunch of accessories that are installed. But I think it's going to work out really well because it's already got that you know heightened ceiling. And I, I can mount some shelving in there and put my key machine in it. It's going to be, it's going to be a pretty awesome starter vehicle. Sure. Well, and you don't see too many Astro vans rolling around, at least not up here anyways. <laughs> we don't have rust, thankfully, here in Arkansas. You go you go a little bit further north and you get to Missouri, you, you can start to see some, but it's it's really, thankfully, okay. not, not anywhere near me. I had a F-150 yesterday that I was doing, uh, it was, well, the power windows and the power door locks didn't work, and there's, there's a corroded cur- connector in the left kick panel behind the panel, and so I found it, okay, cool, c- corrosion, and I looked down, and I could see the ground <laughs> through the floor, floor panel, and this is a big rust hole, I'm like, oh, I know why this is corroded now, <laughs> the water just came straight up. <laughs> European cars, you gotta find where the water gets in, right? That's, that's the running joke? Right, right. Well, it, up here, they would rust through, and then the water just drains back out, so problem solved. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's great. So, okay, so you were, uh, how long did you teach for? So I started teaching in August of 2016, and I taught all the way through the beginning of the pandemic, and uh, I think my last days were in May of 2020. So I I got out right when the pandemic was just starting. So I I didn't get to live through, you know, the hybrid, come in half the day, you know, all that stuff. It 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 was a challenge. I have to say that my institution, I think, did really well. Whenever we first started, I mean, we used a mixture mm-hmm. of different methods to, to, you know, stay in contact with students, but I don't think anybody was prepared, especially not in the trades, man. You can't hand a kid a, a wrench through a screen and be like, here, go, you know, <laughs> take this part off that this NATEF list says we have to do. Like, it just doesn't work yeah. as much as we wish it would. Yeah, it was, it was brutal that uh, that first spring trying to do everything online. Uh, just, there's no way, there's no way to make it happen. Um yeah, so we, me and you actually started teaching about the same time. I started in 2017. Um, how how did you get into teaching? What got you there? So I think we have a similar story in the, in the way that I was an alumnus of my university, and I was actually out in the field one day, and I got a phone call from my old instructors, and he said, hey, um, we're going to have an opening. Would, would you be interested in applying? And ended up talking to him for a little bit, and went through the application process and turns out one of my other instructors was retiring for some health reasons and it just fell in my lap. I got really lucky, went through the application process, interviewed and and got the position. Um, It was just a a blessing. I couldn't have been happier to have that opportunity come to me and it just kind of happened. I don't know how to describe any other thing that happened. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. I I, kind of feel the same way how, it just, the, the planets aligned and I was just in the right place at the right time, you know, cause I, I have a feeling we're about the same age. I'm 35. How old are you? Oh man. I'm, 
I hate to talk about age. I'm 26 years old. I'm a real young young person. I mean, I got the bald okay. spot. Like I'm starting to bald, <laughs> but that's that's probably more the stress of working in this industry than my age, <laughs> right? <laughs> so okay. So I mean, e- even more so. And this is something I wanted to ask you about because even at because well, I started when I was 30, and I felt very strange going in there teaching at a younger age. And my first group of students that I had, I had like three or four guys that were older than me and I'm walking in there and teaching them and I'm confident about the material, but it's just a, it's a, it's a weird feeling to be like, you're the leader, you're in charge, you're telling everybody, you know, how to do everything, what to do. And here's the deadlines. And they're older than you. It was very strange for me. I don't know if you experienced anything like that. So every semester, I actually had students that were older than me. And this may sound strange or opposite to your experience, but my older students respected me, never questioned oh, me. Yeah. They, I mean, they asked questions, but they weren't like, you're not old enough to, to know that. How do you know that? Uh-huh. I, I had sure. the biggest kickback from students that were high school aged because I actually taught both high school age students and college age students, we we had a program where kids would come half a day from their high school and we just mixed them in. I mean, that's what I did. I, I went into this program when I was in high school. So surprisingly, it was the younger kids that I got the most you know kickback from, probably because of the fact okay. that they're not that much younger than me, big picture wise, you know. So I actually had the opposite. Gotcha. Well, I will say my older students were always the best students. I mean, they were always, you know, they're just more focused on what they're doing and attention to detail and stuff like that. I I never had any issue with any of them. It was just, it just felt weird for me uh, to be in that position. Um, but the the more that I've done it, because I usually have at least one, if not a couple that you know, or older people going through the program. Now it's just, it, it feels okay. Um, I just remember at the beginning, it was strange. Um, do you remember your first day, like in front of a class? I like to ask oh, other teachers man. this. <laughs> I remember how nervous I was and how terrible <laughs> I felt like I did. So that I don't really remember much. I mean, I remember the courses I was teaching, but man, how I bet uh, I was just, as white as a sheet and shaking, man. Like I don't, I don't remember anything except how nervous it was scary. You know, like standing in front of a group of people, you don't really get taught public speaking skills as an automotive technician. Nobody's like, Hey, come over here and we're going to talk to 20 customers all at one time about this, you know, lesson plan. Nobody was ever like, Hey, let's do that. So it, I just remember being extremely nervous and feeling like I, I was not good enough, which I think most teachers feel in their first year, maybe two. Yeah. You have that imposter syndrome. I know I did still do some days. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I was exactly the same. Like I had talked to customers and I had talked to other people, but I never really had any group presentations or public speaking experience. And, uh, all of a sudden there I am up there <laughs> telling everybody, um, yeah, I had, how many students did I have that first year? I think I had 16 students the first year. Um, so it, it is a smaller group. I mean, I know some, you know, professors or instructors have 50 plus, depending on what you're teaching. And that would probably be even worse. But um, 
yeah, it, it doesn't really matter when you're the center of attention. You've got to do a presentation. It it was it was something else of those first few weeks. I know I would I would. I wish I could see it like a recording, but at the same time, <laughs> I don't know if I'd, I'd be like, shut it, it off, be shut it off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you kind of find your groove, right? You just, you keep doing it, you keep doing it. And it's just like any other skill you kind of figure it out and get more and more comfortable with it as you go. What would you say for while you were teaching how many years did you actually do it for? About four years. I think it was four, four years. years worth okay. of semesters. Yeah. Okay. Um, what was your biggest challenge in teaching automotive? It's a tough question. Just big picture wise, I think it would be, you know, teaching the curriculum and meeting all the objectives that you had to meet and then having the students still be a technician at the end of the day. So like, the NATEF accreditation, I think it's the ASE Education Foundation nowadays. They have a list of things you have to do. It's like, this is priority one, priority two, priority three, these things you have to do. And let's be realistic, very few people rebuild engines in shops today, right? But you have to teach mm-hmm. an engines class. So how do you meet these priorities, but then teach relevant content? So like we talked about engines, for example, at ASTE. In my engines class, I yep. went through a build sheet and measurements are critical. You you have to be able to use measurements, but nobody really rebuilds engines. So when you're doing this, you know, engine rebuild to meet these tasks, I'm harping on measurement or we go over how to do like timing belts because maintenance is far more common than, you know, engine rebuilds or swapping engines is far more common. So I would go over, you know, like timing belts, doing a timing belt on an engine. So that was like my biggest struggle was taking students and turning them into technicians and not just meeting task list items. You know, I didn't want it to be like, hey, let's just do this P1. You know, I wanted, hey, why is it critical we know how to do a timing belt? Because that's something you're going to see in a shop. So I'm, I'm sorry if that's kind of like a long drawn out answer, but that, that to me is where I saw the biggest challenge was making those two meet. Yeah, it's... It's extremely challenging because if you if you do hit everything that you need to on that task list, you're you're doing a lot of stuff. I mean, that does take up your whole course period or your whole semester or whatever to do if they hit all of that stuff. But then you look at it, like you said, okay, well, I'm you know, I am or I have been a real real technician out in the field and okay, well, what about this? What about doing a relative compression test, right? Like, shouldn't we spend some time on understanding that? Shouldn't that be its own course? Um, maybe we need to talk a little bit about ADOS at some point, obviously not right at the beginning, but shouldn't that be somewhere in there? Because that's something that they're probably going to have to know about. Um, and where do you fit it in? Because you've already got all this time allotted to meeting those tasks to be accredited, which of course, you want to be accredited so you get funding and they, the school leaves you alone and all that stuff. Um, but it's it's tough. It is. And you hit the nail on the head. Teaching diagnostics is critical because who cares if you can rebuild an engine if you can't tell that you need a rebuild or if you can't mm-hmm. diagnose correctly because if it doesn't need a rebuild, now you sold them an engine. Now you're really on the hook. So I'm, I think we're right there on the same page. Teaching the relevant industry content that they need to know to, to go out into industry, but then also meeting those tasks. I think that was my challenge, like finding the yeah. middle ground to do as much of both as you possibly can. 
Yeah, we um we actually just finished today our engine building course, and so we do. It's an old um like early early two thousands late nineties Chevy Cavalier two point two liter four cylinder. So real real basic push rod motor, very simple to take apart and do all the measuring and stuff. And it's very time consuming, like you said, to go through and measure everything. We're using micrometers and dial bore gauges. And I, I do feel like some of that time, I'm like, boy, we could use this time for something else. I feel it'd be more relevant. On the flip side of it, though, they do get a really good, intricate understanding of how an engine works. Um, so I don't know that I would take the build out um, if I had the option, because after that, then we progress into um, mechanical diagnostics. And then we go into, you know, other, other stuff after that, but that, that fundamental understanding where they got that crankshaft in their hands and they're installing those pistons. Um, I, I guess just as like, you know, devil's advocate for, for ASE, there, there is some benefit to it, but you know, doing, um, like, I'm trying to think of one and they have questions about like, you know, grinding valves or, or there's a task list items, but like grind, grinding valves and stuff like that, where it's like, okay, how far do we go? How much do they really need to know about the machinist side of things here? Yeah. And I'm a big proponent for ASC. Like I'm not, I'm not trying to discount or discredit what that requirement is. Like I totally back that. It was just, keeping up with the times, I guess, like teaching kids yeah. relative compression. Maybe that should be one of the, you know, P1 items, but it, you know, uh-huh. things take time. I totally get it. And uh, what's another way to say it? Keeping the industry happy with where you're going. Like we had advisory board meetings and when they come in and they see an older engine, they're going to get kind of upset. Ours did, you know, whenever we had a meeting, we had an old 289 V8 you know, ancient carbureted distributor ignition. And they were like, what the heck is that thing doing here? But, you know, kids are kinesthetic learners. That's what I served as you know, a teacher. All, almost all of my students were kinesthetic. So if they could hold a spark plug, if they could, you know, take this distributor cap off and watch it spin and see, oh, that's, you know, half the speed of the crank. It, it helped it click in their head, just like you're talking about with holding. This is a crankshaft. You know, they see it. They touch it. So I, I think we're both right at the same place. We're talking about the same stuff, just differently. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, what was your uh, favorite course to teach of what you had? So I've gone back and forth between the medium heavy duty industry and the automotive industry. And I taught a, a diesel course. And I, I honestly think that that's probably my favorite one to teach because it's what I started okay. my career in. I did medium and heavy duty trucks for a few years when I first started. And I have a real big passion for it. And I had some amazing industry relationships. I built some amazing relationships with some businesses in my area at the school as well. And it just, I had a, a passion for that course. Awesome. Yeah, I am, uh, <laughs> I'm weak on diesel to say, uh, say the least. We have a, we have a diesel program we actually share the shop with. And so, um, I'll, I'll go over and talk to that guy <laughs> anytime I get questions on diesel stuff. Cause some of our students have the big, you know, Ford trucks or whatever. And I'm, I'm pretty weak in that area. So it's always nice to have somebody to reach out to. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of actually, now that I asked you that, what my favorite one is, um, 
I, I mean, honestly, so I teach an admissions course, right? Which sounds boring as hell. And I tell all the students that this sounds boring, but just hang on because it's also the point where I introduce, um, oxygen sensors, which then goes in the fuel trims. Cause it all just kind of works together. So I bring that into admissions and we do air fuel ratios. And, um, the, the point in the semester where we get into that, it's like, we really get into the good stuff and then we jump off from there and go into computer controls and fuel injection and ignition. But that, that admissions course, when we sort of give them that, that baseline of understanding for engine performance, I, I think that is my, my favorite part of the year. And uh, who knows if it's for the students, but <laughs> for teaching wise, anyways, that's my favorite. Awesome. I, um, I really have a passion for electrical and, and, engine performance or emissions, yeah. but I, I was never able to teach those two courses. I had some amazing instructors that taught those courses that I worked with, but um, electrical, excuse me, I did teach an engine performance class a few times, but electrical is one that I really enjoyed. I never really got to teach yeah. that, that yeah. course. Um, yeah, so I don't actually teach the electrical course that's done by another instructor and he does an awesome job of it. And so when they get to me, they're already expected to know, you know, the, the basic electrical skills. And then we integrate it into the vehicle systems. Like, okay, you already know how, you know, voltage drop works and current and all this stuff. Well, here's a, uh, you know, here's an ignition coil. Here's a fuel injector. Let's apply that to a real life scenario. Um, but I, I, I integrate it so much into almost all of my courses to make sure that we include electrical training and exercises and stuff. Um, and it is, it's, it's so much fun to work through and see the light bulbs come on real or figuratively, I guess. <laughs> um, <Yeah. but laughs> um, I, I, I do honestly enjoy that, but that was the part of the job that I liked the most, I think was the electrical stuff. Yeah, that's working on diesels, for example. So almost everything on a truck is bust. It's on a, you know, a communication bus and you end up working with modules, inputs, outputs. I mean, there's a lot of electrical in it. I mean, heck, even some after treatment stuff that's a sensor is on a bus. So I think that's part of the reason why I enjoyed that so much is because everything touches some electrical component. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, you gotta have you gotta have that background. Uh, no matter what system of the car you're working on today, um, and see, I always liked electrical because it was like math. I mean, it, it is, but like, <clears throat> there's rules that have to be followed. There's it's physical laws, and it doesn't matter what it's on. It has to do a certain thing. It's just a matter of whether you can measure it or assess it correctly. Um, and I just, I like that constant, right? Like, it's not like a suspension noise where who knows what could be going wrong or who knows what little thing could be causing this squeak. Like if it's electrical, like it's got to work this way. Uh, so I, I don't know. I always just thought it was like, this, this makes the most sense to me. This should be the easiest thing to figure out on the car. But as I'm sure, you know, so many people struggle with it. Absolutely. It's 
I think it's a struggle for everybody until the light bulb goes off. I mean, I, I remember in electrical mm-hmm. class when I was a student, like at first I was like, man, what's this Ohm's Law stuff? You know, like, aren't we here to be, you know, <laughs> fixing cars? And then after I put yeah. two and two together and I was like, well, everything's electrical and then started paying attention in class and it clicks, you just kind of follow it from there. But I think that's another thing. It's like breaking the attitudes. Whenever you get a student that comes in and they're like, I'm just, I just want to fix cars. And you're like, well, uh-huh. here's reality about yeah. fixing cars is everything's electrical. Well, I just want to turn nuts and bolts. And that's, that's great. And we need that too. But, you know, getting students excited to learn electrical instead of you know, like coming in and be like, oh, man, I have to learn this Ohm's Law stuff. Because a lot of kids, they do, they're mechanically inclined. They want to work on things with their hands. And then when it comes time to get to electrical class, I think that's probably where we had one of our biggest drop-offs was when students got into electrical. They're like, it's not for me. Yeah. What do you think is a good way to get a student excited about electrical? Man, that's a tough one. I think... Probably hands-on activities, so actually using like real-life cars and bugging them. The problem is, is there's only so many cars and there's a bunch of students. So I don't know. I'm sure you guys probably had like you know school vehicles that the school owned, and yep. you could go out and do whatever you want to them. But there's you mm-hmm. know so many minutes in a day, and there's only so many kids, and one or two kids diagnoses you know diagnose the vehicle, and then hey man, uh, just so you know, it's a G103, and then yeah, yeah. G- the gig's up. You know you're not uh-huh. you're not going to be able to use yep. that bug. So yep. it's it's 100%. a fine line. Yeah, to, today with uh, the group chats and stuff, like there's no keeping secrets from any of them, and uh, at least I'm aware of that. But it is a challenge. Um, I'll tell you one. A method that I'll use, and and so th- this is a, this is a life hack for a teacher if, if you teach, because it not only saves me time, saves me a ton of prep time, but it also uh, creates a situation where where students aren't giving other students the answers. Is you take take a group of students, maybe two or three students, and you give them a car, and you say, hey you're going to plant this bug on this car. You have to make this system broken in a realistic way. You know, whether that's a broken wire or whatever, you're going to plant this bug. You're going to do it. So I don't have to do it. (laughs) And then the other group will do the same thing on a different car. Your goal then, after you've planted this bug, you show me what you've done. You've proved, okay, it's broken in the way that I want it to, which I'm sure you know as a teacher is not an easy thing to do. Sometimes I break something intentionally. I'm like, oh, that didn't turn out the way I wanted it to. So you have to understand the system enough to actually do it. So there's some learning even in just planting the problem. But then they switch groups and they find out the problem from the other group. And I say, okay, well, whoever's done first wins or whatever. And, and there's no really winning here. But it's a competition now because they want to they wanna stump the other group and they want to figure out the problem before the other one does. So it gets a, a little bit of competitive nature to it. Um, so that's, that's my method for electrical bugs <laughs> going forward. I tried it out. It, it works out fairly well. The only thing is, is sometimes they really, really break the cars. <laughs> All of a sudden, you got some smoked modules. I'm like, oh, okay, well, yeah, you, you definitely broke this one. Um, but yeah, that's that's uh, that's one way to go about it. Um, but that's going back to what you said, the hands-on, right? Actually doing it. It's not just a diagram. We're actually figuring out a problem, and that um, that like satisfaction that they get from uh, from accomplishing or or you know overcoming 
this problem and getting to getting to the end it's not for everybody but i say most people that are in this industry that gets that gets that fire going to, i want to do more of this i want to solve more problems yeah totally one thing i i'm really sad that i i didn't do more of and i didn't really make use of until like the last two semesters of teaching was real life case studies so i worked mm. at a, a truck rental and leasing facility during the summertime and anytime we had holidays, I, I tried to stay in industry. And like I was saying earlier about having you know a really good relationship, this was one of those businesses that I partnered with. And I would try to take pictures, take detailed notes, take you know diagrams and draw on them. And I would my diesel class, I think, was the only one I got to use this in. I might have used it in another class, but I I did a real life case study and I said, okay, so here's the truck we're working on. You know, here's the information, customer complaint. What's the first step, guys? And then I would make my class. If, since we were in a classroom, we weren't actually in the sh- in the shop. Like, what's the first step? You know, confirm complaint. Once you confirm the complaint, we go to the next slide. You know, and it would be pictures of you know here's a diagram of whatever. And I would actually walk through the case study with students, and it seemed like I had much better participation from my students and engagement. They actually would answer questions instead of just you know crickets. You're like, hey guys, what's the next step in the diagnostic process? And then crickets they would actually be engaged and they would be excited you know i had some really fun times a few you know instances where i used a case study so i'm, I'm pretty sad that I, I didn't get to use that more before i had to leave teaching yeah i i 100 agree with that i enjoy obviously going to classes that have case studies but the same thing that you mentioned like if i'm if I'm walking them through a story and specifically something that I went through, it just, it adds that like personal element to it and it draws in someone's attention. Like, okay, I want to see where this is going. Um, and then maybe you show them, well, here's where I messed it up. Here's where I made the wrong call or broke something or fried a module or whatever. And it just sort of, it's so much better than just reading, you know, service information or, a procedure or telling them what to do and not to do like, well, here's where I messed up and here's how I progressed. Here's how I figured out the actual problem. I I don't know if it's just the personal element or exactly what it is. Somebody with psychology probably knows (laughs) the details on that, but it works. It works. It really Um, does. And and that's kind of why I like to do my mobile thing too, so that I can bring that in a class. Um, Because, I mean, you, you could obviously do that from your personal experience, but I want to, I want to try to bring as much relevant material to the classroom as I can. Like this, I just saw this yesterday, guys. Here's what I went through. Here's how I made the bad call. (laughs) Don't do that. (laughs) Yeah. Learning from the mistakes. So the, the case study I used was actually a a vehicle that was stuck in D-rate and it wouldn't read any def fluid level. There was a bunch of problems. Ended up being a missing fuse. So this, this truck had actually okay. been to a dealer. It had been in our shop and had a lot of time, the shop being the place I was working at part-time, and nobody could figure it out. And the reason I chose this as a case study is because whenever you talk to someone, I think I've actually even heard this in some of the episodes that you've had on before. We've checked all the fuses, right? That, I love that one. We've checked all the fuses. 
did you check yep. for all of them to be there? No, we checked all the yeah. ones that are present, and it was a missing fuse. And at the very end, I have a finger right at the open slot where there's no fuse, and then the next slide at the <laughs> you know is a fuse in it, and everything's fixed. So I, I like yeah. using those that are relevant, you know, because breaking people of those yeah. habits before they get those habits. At least that was something I yeah. tried. And my after I did that, none of my students ever came to me. Hey, we checked all the fuses. They would say, hey, we went to the diagram and found all the fuses that are relevant for this circuit, you know. So it was it was a good time. And everybody got a good laugh. So Sure, sure. Yeah, that's uh that it is amazing how much when I go out to shops that that ends up being the problem. I mean, sometimes it is literally just a popped fuse, you know, and okay, yeah, you should probably for probably should have found that, but Usually it's when they don't realize a system is tied into another system, but then yeah, the missing fuse. And <laughs> it's like, why are people just pulling fuses out, not putting them back? That's what I always just like, <laughs> I don't get it, but it happens all the time. So I'm a super like curious person. I, I want to know why the why haunts me at night. If I don't know the why, like that's Ooh. what keeps me up. That did I torque that drain plug or did I torque that bolt? So when <laughs> yeah. I when I worked on this vehicle, I actually stuck around because our shop had two shifts, and I was training some people during the day, and then at night shift they just did their normal thing. I wasn't there to train the night shift guys because they brought some of them to days for me to train them. So when we were done for that day, and I had worked on that truck, I waited around because they told me that that particular vehicle had come in at uh, at night. So I went out and asked the guys that were working in the shop. I was like, hey, uh can you give me any more info on that, you know, that Volvo truck? And they were like, oh yeah, you know, the the driver, he like called us at like 9.30 and he just, he couldn't figure out why the truck was broke down. He said that his lights were going out on his trailer. And so he pulled a spare fuse out of the fuse box and stuck it in the lights. (laughs) And then the truck just wouldn't move. And I was like, you know, (laughs) we could have a discussion about, you know, customer interviews, talking to customers, getting complaints. So that's a whole nother episode, but I just, it kills me. You know, the simplest stuff can be the biggest problem. So one vehicle with the answer as to where the fuse went. (laughs) I, I don't know. I mean, obviously we have a different mindset than the average motoring public, but Sometimes I really question like how people just don't make those connections. Like I did this and now this doesn't happen, but I'm not going to tell you about what I did. It just, my car's broken. <laughs> like how did you, how did you not make these, these connections? But I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that's, we could go on for hours, you know, like getting good customer yeah. complaints. I, th- I think I've heard you mention it before. Like, car doesn't run okay well does it crank and not start does it you know is it no crank you know we're technicians so we want these details Uh, but as a customer you know consumer they may not have that same mindset so like getting a really good service writer that knows how to interview customers like that's a skill in and of itself because i'd I'd probably be the worst service writer ever like does it crank and not start what do you you mean so having somebody that's got really good people skills who can interview the customer like that's a superpower dude that is when I was a tech, cause I would like to talk to the customer as much as possible because you get that service writer and there's a middleman, you miss stuff. So I'd call it the customer, especially if there's like an intermittent issue. Right. But that was probably the most difficult thing to get somebody to answer. And, and it's just cause they didn't know, but 
does it crank or not, right? When it doesn't start, is the engine turning over or not? And they don't know what a starter motor is and they don't know. And so you're trying to like make the noise of the motor. I was like, does it go row, 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 And you're like, well, I, th- I think so. I, it's kind of a noise like that. <laughs> I'm like, because <laughs> it's going to send us in two completely different directions, right? No crank or a crank, but you can't even get that information from the customer. I struggled with that. I, I don't know how many times, <laughs> but I get it. I get it. Right. You don't, you don't know what a starter is. You don't understand how an engine works. Um, so somebody has got a good way of asking that question to get a right answer. I would love to hear it. Me too. Me too. Cause that, that's what scares me about this whole retail customer thing, man. Cause when, when do you get calls about keys? People lose them. If they rarely ever want to add a key, Uh, I haven't really seen as many added keys as I have all all keys lost. But then the third one won't start. Oh, I love those calls. And it just needs a key. So that's that's what I'm I'm kind of scared of. It won't start. What do you mean it won't start? (laughs) And the the spiral into confusion begins. Uh So yep, yep. For for me, it's modules. I get calls from people just individual people. Hey, I just need you to come program this module for me. Okay. Well, like, and I, I, like I said, now I avoid it as much as possible before I'd be like, Oh, okay. Well, did you replace it? Why did you replace it? Um, and, and it almost always is something else, right? It's almost always something completely unrelated. The modules, not the fix. And, and then I go and I can't communicate to the module or I program it. It does. Now it still doesn't start and they're still upset. And, it, that lack of understanding. Um, but even with shops, I've struggled just getting that basic understanding. And that, that one's really tough. Like when I can't even explain how a system is broken to the shop, I'm, I'm really lost on where to go. I had this with a guy the other day with a knock sensor. That, so the knock sensor was going off because the engine had a lifter that was just shot and it was super noisy, right? So you go to accelerate and you could hear this lifter just and you could watch the scan tool, the knock sensor pick this thing up and it would drop the ignition timing and it's just gutless, right? No acceleration. Um, And I was trying to explain this to the shop and they're like, so we need to replace the knock sensor. I'm like, no, I was like, you need to fix, you need to fix this lifter. You need to fix the noise because it's said, because I, Honestly, I should have even have said anything about the knock sensor. I should have just said, fix the lifter, you'll be good. But I was like trying to explain it. Like it's setting off the knock sensor, it's picking this up, it's backing off the ignition timing. They couldn't get past their head that like the knock sensor was the problem. They're like, so we just unplug the knock sensor? I'm like, I was like, well, I don't know, maybe that'll work. But I was like, you need to fix this noise. And these are professionals. Like these are people working on cars. And I don't know how to get past that when I can't even explain it to the professional. So something, uh, if any of my students listen to this podcast, I'm sure they're going to be like, oh no, he's saying it again. But one thing I really (laughs) talked about um, was like symptom versus problem. So are we looking at a symptom or are we looking at the problem? And sometimes what the customer's complaint is, is a symptom, not a problem. So I'm sure that symptom was like low power or something along those lines, or, Mm -hmm. you know, there was another symptom, but the problem is the lifter and, and getting, students to have that mindset or, of, you know, 
problem, symptom, things can be interrelated. And then them going out into industry hopefully will fix that problem for us because that, that's, that's my, yeah. Yeah. my hope and dream is that my students are out there like, he said read service info and, you know, like look for <laughs> problems, not symptoms, you know. I'm sure my students are tired of hearing the two words service information because I said that all the time. Oh, but then man. symptom yeah. versus yeah. problem. That's that's a really good basic way to look at it, right? And to at least have that, you know, red light, green light in your head, you know. Um, when you when you can boil it down to something like that and at least apply it to just about everything you're doing, that's that's a, that's a good way to do it. Yeah, um, service information has mentioned quite a few times throughout the semester. Um, yeah. What do, what do we do in this situation? Refer to service information. Yes. Yep. Good job. Yep. <laughs> I wouldn't even have to say it. It'd be like, what do we need to do? Service information. I, if any of my kids are listening, that's what they're screaming at the computer right now. Service information. They got tired of hearing me say that. <laughs> but, but it's true. So it, it needs to be said. Um, and then even then, sometimes the service information doesn't have what you need or, or even gives you wrong information. We had one of those um, just recently in – we were doing time and belts, and they showed me the page they printed off for this car, and it showed you here's where you line up the marks. And we did that, and it was out of time. And so we dig and we dig and we dig, and we find out, okay, there's another set of marks, and this is where it's actually supposed to be. I don't think they did anything wrong. I thought they – they got what they, you know, that's, that's the timing procedure that all that I had for that car, but it was wrong. I was like, you know what? This is a really good example for real life because that can happen. Um, so I was almost kind of glad that they got to struggle through that and just, at least they have in the back of their mind, like <laughs> this can happen. You mentioned struggle through it, and that, that reminds me of an episode that I just listened to recently. I think it was Matt Fanslow was talking about like teaching the techs underneath him, and he's like, if I just mm-hmm. tell them, they'll never get it. Like They have to go out there and struggle. And like as an educator, yep. I'm, I'm kind of – I'm on the fence you because know, I have to get so much done in you know, such a you know, set period of time. But if they don't struggle at all, it feels like – the investment. They're not invested in learning until they've gotten their butt kicked and they've spent an hour and it's something stupid. They go, oh man, now I get it. And then it never leaves their brain. It stays there forever. Well, well that, that first shop period that you were out in the shop with the students, I mean, how bad did you just want to grab that bolt and here, let me, let me show you how to do it. And I struggled with that so much. I'm watching these these guys who are very green, and that's that's how it is. That's why they're there. And they're just this the simplest bolt that needs to be threaded, and they're just just getting their butts kicked for it. It was really tough for me at first. And I learned by the other instructors that I work with, they really told me they're like, you gotta let them just just struggle and get their butt kicked. It has to happen. And it does. It does. Like they have to do that in order to grow and progress, or maybe even figure out it's not for them. Maybe that's an option too. But they gotta do that. It's so important. I mean, it's even important for me too. Like when I'm going through this stuff, I'm like, okay, this is super frustrating. I hate this right now, but it's worth it to get my butt kicked. It's gonna get me to the next place that I need to be. I um I totally agree. It at first probably the first two years like it really 
was terrible. Like I was like, oh, I want to help them so bad. And then after I started to see the results, like if you let them struggle, and then like a class period or two later, be like, hey, um, you remember this thing we we did in the shop? And they'd be like, oh yeah, I remember that. And then they talk about it, and they they understood the concept. Then they understood how the system worked or what they did wrong. And when you see that progression, it I was sold on it at that point. Yep. Sometimes, and I don't know this. Maybe this is just like a dick move, but they'll they'll want me to do something like that. So I'll show them like, oh, here's how you unclip this fuel line, and then I'll clip it back together. <laughs> okay, now you do it. <laughs> and some of them were like, what the heck? But <laughs> at least they sh- they saw, you know, okay, this is how you do it. Now I want you to do it. Um, but it's important that they do. So like in our introductory class, like we called it theory and maintenance. So we had that 289 I told you about. And when I taught the four-stroke cycle, one of the tasks is we would time, mechanically time the distributor in this 289. So I'd walk them through how to statically time it, you know, put it on number one, top dead center, compression this many degrees before top dead center, drop the distributor in. And we would walk through it. And then I'd be like, okay, who wants to volunteer? And, you know, kid would raise their hand. Like, All right, come over here. Pull the distributor out, turn the engine over. Here you go. And then, you know, they have to struggle, man. And by the end of the semester, yeah. my students could do that procedure in two to five minutes, depending on, you know, a lot of different factors, whether or not they got it to roll over on compression the first try. You know, they got proficient at it, and it was the struggle. They had to go out there and make it shoot flames out of the top of the carburetor a few times before they figured out. <laughs> it, was, it was a great learning tool, though. You know, the struggle was there. It was out in the open. So, Yep. Yep. That's uh, it. It's a good lesson for anybody. Um, it it even applies to maybe I'm going in left field here, but like the whole Identifix, uh, you know, silver bullet thing. That's that's how what that is, right? Like, if you struggle through and figure it out for yourself, you're gonna get your butt kicked. This industry will do that to you. But how much better will you be on the other side? That's it applies to everybody, no matter what experience level you're at in the automotive industry. So I try to remind myself of that, but obviously, you know, when I'm under the gun, I'm trying to make money. (laughs) Of course I go for the silver bullet sometimes too, but I got to at least think about what am I losing out on here if I didn't go through it myself. Yeah. And I get that. Um, you were at ASTE just like I was, did you go to the, um, I think it was like a lunch where they had like the town hall with Carm uh, and my buddy Keith. He's out of Tulsa. He's like two hours from me. And there was a uh-huh. was it Jim Kokonis, I think was the other guy's name. And they kind of like went back and forth about diagnostic process. And it, at the end, they were yep. talking about um, a few different subjects. And Keith brought up like sometimes it's cheaper. Like I'm, this part's $20. I charge this dollar amount per hour. Hey, customer, like do you want to try it? Like. I mean, and he had a valid point. So sometimes those silver bullets, I think there's some validity, but you have to be very careful going down that, you know, going down that path. And after that, I actually even talked to Keith. I was like, so Keith, I really like those points, but what if you get a bad part? Because we've all been there, right? You've you've gotten a part out of the box with me. It was, I was Uh working with a Chevrolet dealer and never fails. You you get a car come in, a 1.4 turbo GM, and it's going squeeze. You go over there and stick your thumb over the little hole. Stop squealing. They're valve cover time. Well, I got a valve cover. Put a valve cover on. Squeal. And it was, I was freaking out. What am I going to do? It's, I didn't diagnose it right. And one of my mentor at the time, his name's Ronald. Um, he worked at the Chevrolet dealer too. He's like, hey man, um, go see if they have another valve cover in stock. Went and grabbed a valve cover, slapped it on fixed. So 
there's validity to both sides. I mean, I, I see both uh-huh. both being a point. And funny you mentioned like the Identifix top hits. So I beat service information to death. But we used ProDemand. And what do you see? Anything you type into ProDemand, P0300, what do you see? SureTrack. Uh, oh, yeah. And I told my students, I was like, if I catch you looking at SureTrack before you've read every piece of description operation, you're going to get real tired of me real quick because we're going to talk for like an hour about how this is not <laughs> the, the best way to do it. And they were like, please don't talk, please. We just won't look at SureTrack. We just won't look at it. <laughs> just please shut up. <laughs> yes. So I can see both sides to that argument, but I, I didn't want myself or my students to fall into that trap of only silver bullets. Yeah. Cause if you, if you become dependent on it, it's one thing, but if you use it in a valid way, like $250 an hour, and this is a really common failure item or, Hey, I've done my diagnostic and it seems like, you know, 90 times this part's fixed it. Hey, let's go ahead and try it. And we can feel some confidence yep. about it. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes that it's just that little bit of reassurance, right? Cause you always have that thing in the back of your mind. Like, ah, I'm really, really sure this is it, but you know, there's always these possibilities. And then a hundred other people had the same thing. I'm like, okay, now I feel better. We can, we can put that part on this car. Um, totally with you on that. Yeah. ASTU was really cool. I so enjoyed that. I met so many cool people. I can't wait for the next event. Um, obviously I met you there. I, I think we, we were friends on Facebook, but you know, it's, it's not the same as meeting somebody in person and you're just like, Hey, this is a really cool dude. Um, that's why, that's, I, that's why I reached out to you have it on the show. Cause it's like, I, I just enjoyed chatting with you at the, at the show. And I was like, let's, let's do the same thing and record it. Um, but it was, it was so much fun to, to get to be there with everybody. Absolutely. It was it was an absolute pleasure talking to you, and I, I couldn't be happier to be on the podcast, man. Like, I've listened to this podcast and a few others pretty religiously because I'm an automotive nerd. So it was like, heck yeah, I get to be on the podcast, <laughs> told a few of my buddies. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm really happy to see it's in-person training again because I, I didn't get to go to virtual vision, but I had attended vision like every year for three years before that. And like, without in-person training, like I just didn't feel the same. There's something about it, like going and meeting people, you know, being there for the events and like the, you know, social interaction that you get like at lunches and you get to see these town halls where some people play devil's advocate. I mean, it was, it was cool seeing different perspectives. I mean, I met a guy that uh, is at the scan tool company. I just bought a top Don. I don't know if you've seen the, what is it? The Phoenix plus I think is what it is. And I have just inundated these poor people with like, Hey, this isn't working. Hey, this. I don't know where mine is. I have my, oh, it's over there. <laughs> yeah, mine's in the oh, next yeah, room over. And I finally got to meet Charles, this guy that I've just pestered incessantly. Like, hey, Charles, this feature doesn't work. Hey, Charles, this, you know. And it's, it was kind of interesting putting faces to names, you know. It's, it, I got to meet you. I got yeah, to meet yeah. a bunch of other people that I'd only spoken to through the internet or through groups when, you know, that, that lifeline, phone a friend, you get on the, on the groups. And you're like, hey, man, I'm really getting my butt kicked by this problem. And somebody comes in and the white knight saves the day, helps you out. It was very nice to be able to meet some of those people and and just be back in person again. Things just felt more normal. Yep. Yep. For sure. So I I think it went pretty smoothly. And uh, 
I haven't heard of any uh, super spreader event warnings from it yet. So I think I think we're in the clear to have another one after this because I know a lot of people said like this was testing the waters to see can we do an in-person event? Is this going to be okay? And uh, hopefully that's the case. I'm fine. I'm not coughing. I don't have a fever. So let's let's do some more in-person <laughs> training. I'm ready. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, cool, man. You got anything else uh, you had on your mind? I hit all my notes. So the only thing that I really have is when we were at AST, we talked about like industry versus education. And okay, the, th- okay. the thing that's always bugged me is it seems like we don't always see the same objectives or we don't always have the same incentives. So the thing that always drove me crazy was getting industry to have realistic expectations of what student skill level should be. And then I guess fitting my educational goals to meet what the industry needs as a whole. So how do you keep everybody happy and how do you produce better technicians? And like I said before, you know, I went out and built some relationships with some industry partners and it worked out really well. I was able to provide students with some OE training, saved them from buying a textbook, and then my industry partners got students who had OE certifications. And like we had talked about before, you send a student out there who's, you know, busted tail and, you know, they've got this two-year degree and they go out there and it's like a punch in the face when they're like, oh, you know, you're going to you're gonna be on the loop rack. And everybody's got to start somewhere, but it, they're like, why did I go through school? And then you've got students that come back to you, man, they're all discouraged. Like, I worked so hard. And then they yeah. feel like, they feel like they're, I wouldn't say lied to, but they almost feel disappointed like with where they are. Yep. So I, I was, I was trying to bridge that gap, send students out with credentials on top of the credential of like an associate degree or a certificate and make industry happy. But at the same time, let them know, Hey, look, these students, they're, they're entry level technicians. Like they're not going to be Mr. Goodwrench turning a hundred hours a week. Like you've got to start somewhere. So like, that's been my biggest like frustration, I guess, whenever I was a teacher was getting industry involved with us and then getting their expectations set so that they, they're realistic when a student comes in and the student is happy when they go to industry, setting their expectations like, hey guys, you're going to start at the bottom, but here, let me give you this leg yep. up, get these factory you know, certifications through this training program, hey, and you don't have to buy a textbook. Whenever they heard that, they were sold. They're like, no textbook? Heck yeah, you're the best teacher ever. But um, <laughs> I think that was about the only other point that I didn't get to talk about. Yeah. Oh, well, it, it is because you, you you have to work it from both ends, like you said, because a student can have a misconception, I mean, especially a younger person, about what they're going to get right out of the gate. Like, oh, I'm just going to you know, start off making 60, 70 grand right off the bat. And in very few situations, that's the case because they've got to work up to it. They've got to put in their time. And and do what they have to do. There's there's very few students that can hit the ground running like that unless it's a specific situation where they have prior experience or, or you know, there's there's definitely some outliers. But for the majority of them, they're going to have to put in their time. But at the same time, on the shop side of things, they have to realize that, you know, they're not going to be flat rate monsters right out of school. Very few people do that except for maybe the outliers. And at the same time, I think industry does need to realize what the students are hoping for, at least. 
you know, we'll, we'll, we'll temper their expectations, but they still want this. They still want to be a full-time technician that's doing the, the cool stuff, if you will, or the important stuff, however you want to phrase that. Um, and so to at least lay out a path for them to get there. And that's one of the things that I've tried to convey to the people that would come into our advisory committee meetings is like, give them a path. Um, and I was, I was talking to Seth Thorson. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's got some European shops up here and he does a really great job of that. Like he lays this out for them. Like, Hey, you're going to be sweeping the floors here when you start as a student. I can't let you touch these, you know, $200,000 Lamborghinis, but (laughs) here's your path. Here's how you get there. Here's what you need to do it's in front of you. So at least they know they can see in the distance. Okay. This is where I need to go. And I think that's an important thing for industry to do for the students that they're getting in. They just, they can't just one stick them on a lube rack for five years and hope they stick around or b throw them to the wolves, produce me 70 hours of flat rate. Go like neither of those things work well, but we see it all the time. I'm sure you do too. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not complaining or speaking negatively about any of the industry partners we had. It was just, I felt like I was finally getting into that groove of here's an industry partner, and I worked for them whenever I wasn't teaching. So what would usually end up happening is the students would come in, and they'd say, hey, I want to take diesel class. and be like, great news. Well, if you want, you can go work at this place, and they will get you started. Heck, some of my students actually completed the, the training before they ever took my class. So I could, they, hey, you know, go work on this, you know, you know, running this valve adjustment on this truck. I got to do extra with them because they had already, you know, completed some of that training that I was going to use in class. It just, it worked out. It it was, it was like a hand in a glove. Everybody just worked together. And I had really great partners. They told my students like, Hey, look, this is, this is not what's important. The school's what's important. As long as you're doing well in school, we're happy to keep you around, but you got to make sure you're taking care of your studies. So they, it wasn't that, hey, man, you got any techs? I'm sure you've had that before. The you know random business yeah. owner's like, hey, man, I need techs. And yeah, every day. It's, it's building that, that team mentality. They were a team with us, and it, it just worked out for everybody. You know, save my students' textbook cost. It got them all of the you know, tasks they had to do. They were able to do using that, that OE-level training, and it was, um, it was through Navistar. So the medium heavy-duty truck world, it seems like they're really doing a great job with getting involved with schools and, and giving access to those training materials that they give to the dealers so that my students – didn't have to pay for that textbook. You know, that, that was like a big thing, you know, college is expensive. So every little place where you can save your students some money, they think you're a hero. And it worked out for my partners as well. So I hate to keep hitting that nail on the head, but it was just, I was so happy to, to find that middle ground. And it's just, I'm really sad. I'm not teaching anymore. Cause I, I really saw that as the future. Yeah. Well, you, you obviously are passionate about it. You think you'll eventually get back into it someday? Man, if I could find a teaching job, I'd be there tomorrow. So if I ever see okay. one open, I'll apply. I mean, you you can always form, you know, relationships with people in shops. You can mentor in shops. So just because I'm not, you know, formally in education doesn't mean I can't still do those things. It's just a little sad. One tier moment. Should have never left my teaching <laughs> job. But yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty. Well, they say exactly. And I mean, yeah, you never know where life's gonna bring you to and uh i I, you just you keep the passion for what you're doing and uh, you'll get to the right place i I, that's the way that's the way i operate because i don't always have a plan i just 
I'm going to do what I'm passionate about and hopefully end up in the right spot doing the right thing. It's been a lot of fun talking, Sean. I'm, I'm really appreciative yeah. that you gave me the opportunity to come in and talk to you. And hopefully my rambling isn't the worst episode ever. I tend to ramble. So <laughs> we'll see. No, no, this is good. This is good. Um, I felt like I talked too much, but I get excited about this teaching stuff too. So, <laughs> Me too, man. Totally. Okay, that's going to do it for today's episode. I want to give Zach one more big thank you for coming on the show and chatting with me. I enjoyed that quite a bit. i uh, also like to thank everybody for listening and all the great feedback I've been getting on the show. I really do appreciate it. So uh, with that all said, let's get out there, start fixing the world one car at a time.